do your job with as much kindness as you can. And I say that because in the world of media, it's really nasty. It's tough. There are signs that it's getting better. The cycle happens and you're treated meanly. And then you think that to kind of get ahead, or maybe like it's a rite of passage for you to then pass that energy down. And I just never bought into that. yes to most things. This is the mantra that has guided intrapreneista Leah Wire throughout her career, from being recruited as a young college grad at Cosmopolitan to her current position as the SVP and general manager at DotDash, which includes brands like Brides and Birdie. You're about to hear how she successfully climbed the corporate ladder by leading with kindness, understanding the psychology of team culture, and translating her skills from print to digital channels. Coming up, you'll hear how Leah built the beauty and style group at DotDash, her best tips on getting noticed in the workplace and promoted, the concept of calendar hygiene and why this is so important, the difficulty of managing up and how to motivate a team after a transition, and finally, Leah shares her best tips on succeeding in the workplace while raising three children. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Leah, we are so excited to be sitting down with you this afternoon and learning more about your intrapreneista career journey because you have quite the incredible background. So to start, can you share with us a little bit about your career journey? I was a psychology major in college, so it was like nowhere near going into anything that I've done over the last 21 years now. But I landed in an assistant beauty editor job at Health Magazine right out of college because I had a connection who was an alumni from my college, which was a very tiny school in Pennsylvania called Susquehanna University. So she had graduated from Susquehanna like 15 years before I did, and she recruited through our career center. And just for some gut reason, I saw this posting on the wall, on an actual piece of paper on the wall. And I was like, that sounds like fun. I feel like I should do that. And I had all intentions of going to get my master's in, in psychology. I had been accepted at GW at the time. Like I was just ready and had a plan. And then this thing just happened. And I thought, well, I'll just do it for a year, move to New York for a year and we'll see what happens. And then, you know, now 21 years later, I'm doing this. So it started there really just the first 10 years. I was a beauty editor all in wellness magazines. So I was at health, fitness, self magazine, and just kind of, you know, working my way up the masthead slowly. And then at that 10 year mark, I was recruited by Cosmo to come and run their, their beauty. And that and at the time, you know, like the mid 2000, you know, whatever that was like 2009 Cosmo was really, if you could be a beauty editor at Cosmo, it was really helpful to your career because they it had such huge scale. 
you know, one of the biggest young women's brands in the world, you know, like everybody recognizes it. I think at the time there were like 60 editions. And so from that perspective was really helpful to me to just gain a different type of experience. So I did that for a few years, was hired by Kate White, who was, you know, legend in the business. And then Joanna Coles took her place and Joanna has since been an incredible mentor in my life. And she sort of brought me into more of a corporate role at Hearst where I was over, ended up overseeing 12 brands and all the beauty teams on those brands. So my career was sort of like print, single magazines, and then it was more corporate-ish, like at scale. And then in the last two years, I've transitioned over to fully digital. I had taken a job with this company called Dot Dash, which is a really successful digital media company. And at the time, they 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 reached out to me and they said, we're looking for somebody to come start a beauty business for us. Like, will you do it? And I'm like, start it from scratch? Like, what, you know, what are we doing? And they were like, we don't know. We might buy something. We, we You might start it from scratch. And I don't know. It was just like the right time to make this jump. It felt so intriguing to kind of be entrepreneurial in that way. And, and, and kind of what is this going to be and what can I do there? And so I took the job, didn't know what I was going to actually be heading up. And then like a week or so later, they called me and they said, we bought Birdie and you know, you're going to run that. And I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> I really wasn't. Um, I didn't really didn't want to start something new, but I was open to it. So they started, I went to dot dash. They had acquired Birdie. So I started running that. And then a couple of months later they bought brides from Condé Nast. And so we sort of built this little beauty and style group at dot dash. And the last two years have just been growing like crazy, which has been amazing. So that's my story in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. You've been promoted many times throughout your career. Do you have any tips to share with anyone who is currently looking to get a promotion? Yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting. You asked this question right now because my entire team in the last couple of weeks has gone through a real transition. There's a sort of couple of things were happening. We had several people who were sort of leaders on the team. Um, coincidentally, when this happened, it's only ever happened once before in my, in my career, but coincidentally, they all kind of got these great jobs and, and it was time for them to kind of move on and do something new. So it's a great thing. And we're all, you know, happy for that transition. So it left three really important leadership positions open. And then simultaneously, we were going through a different, we knew that we were going to be growing in these different categories. And so I had a bunch of heads that opened up because of that. And so here I have, you know, heads that I need to fill. And then we have some new heads. And when that happens, it's such a refreshing thing. It was for me, it was a refreshing thing to kind of step back, look at the full org and just think like, okay, we've done this for two years this way for a long time. Now, what can we, how can we do it differently? What do we need? What in the last two years has emerged as like something that we don't have somebody running or leading, but is really important. And so I just totally threw the old org away and made the org what I needed it to be. And because we had such incredible talent underneath these leaders that were leaving, we were able to promote so many people and then of course, elevate the people underneath them. And then, you know, you start like building the org from there. And what I can say to you is the team that is now in place who have moved up and have proved themselves over the last two years to be worthy of these promotions. 
They're just the things they have in common. They are very scrappy. They have great sense of humors and kind of like roll with the change. And I think in digital media, that is just a must. Like, I mean, every couple of weeks you're like, oh, what are we going to do here? Now we have this, we're going to pivot. We're going to do it this way. And, you know, you just have to be, you have to be scrappy, but you have to have like a great attitude to sort of embrace that change. And, and they're all incredibly competent and organized and really see these challenges as such exciting motivating things. And, and they've positioned themselves that way for a long time. So, and I think the other thing is none of them were ever afraid to have FaceTime with me and to get to know me and to, you know, if they needed a one-on-one, they just throw it on my calendar. And, and I got to know them through the years. So it wasn't as though I was just looking after their bosses and, and paying attention to their bosses. Like I've had regular relationships with these people too. Now that's part my style and it's part, I want to know the people who work for me as a whole, not just my direct reports, but they were also brave enough to kind of take those steps and get to know me. And I always say that that is one of the most important things you can do to set yourself up for a promotion. Like, yes, of course you need to be respectful of the chain of command because you don't want your boss like being annoyed with you that you went and skipped a level to her boss. But if you have an, a boss that you can say, I want to get to know the person above you. I want to you know, have a one-on-one with them. That is like so important to having establishing that relationship and being ready to kind of take your boss's place because at some point that's going to happen. At some point the turnover starts to happen. That's natural and that's great. It's it's good for me because it looks, you know, I've I've I have this team of people who are being recruited by other. I mean, that's amazing that that they're ready to do that. But it's also incredible for the people underneath them, and that's just that's just life, and you have to go with it. Those are all such great points and tips. Have you found now, especially over the past year, since we're all working remotely, has it been harder to maybe not only keep culture alive, but do your employees like, will they just put time on your calendar still now that you're working remotely? Like, how do you keep that connection, those relationships now? Yeah. (laughs) So this was really tricky because this time last year, I was like nine months pregnant and I was ready to have my second baby. And so the pandemic hits and it's like, I know I'm going out. We were all gone remote. I think we all thought that it was going to be like, if we were, if we're out for a month, that's going to be a long time, you know, now turn around, it's going to be a year and a half probably. So it was really, really wild. Like how, how this all happened. So you know, I spent a fair amount of time on my return trying to just figure out what is this new normal? They've done this now for four months without me. What are the habits that they've put in place? Do they think these things are working? Is it time to kind of scale back? I think everybody in the beginning was like, we need as much FaceTime as possible because we're not seeing each other. And so then that, what ended up happening, it was like every day there was a daily standup. And then there were like, you know, every two, you know, every other day there were these like cocktail hours. And I think everybody was just burnt out from them after a couple of months. So I sort of took a lot of that stuff off the calendar when I I came back, did much more quality one-on-ones to figure out what had been happening, catch up, but to also reset what was going on. The culture was, I don't, I wouldn't say the culture had changed, but definitely people were, there were moments where people were feeling down. You know, there are people who got sick. Like there was just a lot to handle for everybody. So I think now like we were doing, you know, we were, like I said, we were doing like all these weekly meetings, various groups to stay in touch. And then we had to really scale that back. And at this point, what I've encouraged my team to do is like block out Wednesday and Friday afternoons 
because what is happening is like we are just stacked on top of each other with meetings and we just needed like some calendar hygiene. So, so I made like a lot of weeklies, bi-weeklies. I made, put some space in between some of these recurring meetings. And then we have really, I've encouraged them to just block two afternoons a week to just do work because that's what I think people are challenged with right now. It's like, where do I find the time to do this? People are staying up till midnight and like, it's just, you can't do that. You have to like take a break. Yeah. Zoom fatigue is a real thing. It's so real. We recently went through the same process and implemented the same calendar hygiene. I haven't heard of that term, but I, but I like it. I'm going to start using it. Hashtag calendar hygiene. (laughs) (laughs) One of my good friends at Pinterest threw that term out at me a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, I love that term. Yes. We're definitely going to be making some quote graphics with that, especially for the release of this episode. So thank you. (laughs) We created, these are in the mail to you, but we created these Zoom cards called DigiCards to help all of our meetings become more fun and engaging during during team meetings. So these are in the mail to you too. (laughs) That's so great. I love that. Yeah. So you can use them in your, your next video meeting. I'd love to know if you have any tips for someone who is currently an individual contributor and looking for a manager role. So not someone who's not managing someone right now, but looking for a promotion. The promotion entails managing one or two people and and making that jump to, to the next level. Every manager, first of all, should should be cognizant that somebody who's not managing somebody needs and wants to be afforded that opportunity within a year or two of their time. And so I think that's really important from a managerial perspective to just make sure you're keeping an eye on those people and that you're helping them be able to get to the next spot. And so for a lot of my career, I've helped those individual contributors with when we have interns, making sure they're getting some experience managing that. That's that's a nice entry-level way to manage And it's been helpful, I think, to a lot of people on my team. So that's something that, you know, whether you want to volunteer to do that or whatever it is, that's helpful. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, not everybody's a full-time employee now, right? On staff, there's people that are contractors that work for various companies. And so just raise your hand and say, like, how can I help with this? Like when you have contractors, for example, it is so much work to coordinate them and keep a schedule and make sure everything is just, everyone's operating the same way. And somebody who is a manager of full-time teams and have tons of things on their plate in addition, they would love for somebody to raise their hand and say, I can do this for you. And I think just really looking at how your department runs and finding things that you know, maybe weaknesses or blind spots to your, your manager and trying to craft a way to be able to help. That is the best way for somebody to say, wow, like that person is ready to, when, when she's ready to move, she's going to be a great manager. And, and that's such a key piece to moving up the org. You're, I don't know any, very few people who move up an org without putting people underneath them. So it's, it's just, it's a skill that is so important. And equally important, I think, is learning not just how to, when you're in that job, not just learning how to manage down, 
but how to manage up, which is a whole dance and lesson to be learned too, which just comes with time. Can you take us back to just the evolution of the media industry? You know, when you started, you worked in print and now you're running digital media companies. What was that evolution like? And for you as an individual having to learn, you know, new skill sets and then really taking charge in in this new industry. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I remember, I mean, I'm not going to say like in the year 2000, like the internet wasn't around, but it was definitely like, like four years before I got my first job was like the first time I ever had email. So like the, the fact that like the last 25 years, the entire landscape has changed, not just for media, but like for human beings is kind of a wild concept to understand. Like, so when I was at self magazines, that was like around 2005, 2006, I remember the website (laughs) becoming something that people cared about. And I remember sending this huge report to my editor-in-chief about how I thought we needed to construct the website and how I could help with that. And I don't even think we ever went down that road because what ended up happening with print is that if you were a print person, you were a print person. And if you, you were, there was a really like ironclad wall to get on the other side of digital. And so that was true at Condé Nast. It was true when I went to Meredith. It was true when I went to Hearst. And Hearst, you know, really, they had a specific strategy for that. They, they believed very strongly in keeping those worlds separate for a very long time. And so really as like the closest you could sort of get to that world as a print editor was doing something for the social media accounts. Like if they needed you to do some kind of campaign with a brand that they had paying them, you would be brought into the loop. And so you'd have like social media. And then if you wanted to, maybe you could write, you know, some sort of SEO story that was more or less like just a pain in the butt to write. And you never really wanted to write it because it wasn't, you know, super creative. And, and so when you're a creative print person, you don't really want to do that. So it was really hard to get that experience. And truthfully, the first time I got it was at the very last six months of my time at Hearst, they had a whole new leadership come in and they changed their strategy for a couple of magazines. They started to blend. They were really taking the editorial directors of the digital sites and making them the editors-in-chief of the brand. So they were then overseeing print, for many of them for the first time in their lives, and they were doing both things. And so the editors underneath them, if they wanted to, could really rally and get that digital experience. And so I did. Like For me, I didn't mind writing the SEO stories. I didn't mind doing that almost grunt work when I was like 40 years old, because I needed that experience. And I was determined to not be left without skills to make the transition to to digital. I loved beauty too much. I loved telling stories too much. And so I just really pushed myself to try to figure out as much as I could, because they still kind of shrouded it with a little mystery. And so you couldn't like see the full curtain, but I did as much as I possibly could. And what I will say is even that little bit for those six months before I was recruited to Dot Dash was it allowed me to be in a room with my CEO who eventually hired me 
and talk the talk. I knew enough to have a conversation with him so that it didn't look as though I was like the print girl, which I probably did still look like, but I could still talk to them in a way that I, well, I could, (laughs) I could understand like 80% of what they were saying. Cause a lot of it is still, you know, it it feels like a foreign language sometimes still, but that's just technology and, and digital. But I think what was really helpful and what I always tell people trying to make that jump is that there are skills that you have as a print person that are not archaic. They're very important. When you work in print, you know how to be a brand strategist. You understand holistically, particularly if you're in beauty and fashion, because that is like, that's all beauty and fashion is, is branding. You know how to come up with an idea or a tentpole or a franchise and connect all the dots, because that's how you're trained as a print editor. You're trained to know the idea, you have the content, you have the extensions, how can you sell it? How you're, you know, the business model of a story. And that is what I was able to say to him, like, I'm not going to be the person that's worked at refinery 29 for 10 years. That's not who I am. And I think you have experts on your side that, that have done that, but here's what I can do for you. And that's really what I've strived to do in those two years. I've learned so much. Like, I feel like I've gone to business school in a lot of ways, but what I could corely bring to them was what I was very honest about in the interview. And if you like me, you like me. And if you don't, you don't. And, but let's know that upfront because I'm never going to sell you a false version of myself. And then a month, two months, six months into our relationship, you don't think that I'm the right person for the job. Like you got to know now, cause I'm not making this transition right now. If you don't, if you're not okay with that. Coming up, you'll hear Leah's experience working at Hearst from being an editor to learning the business side of things. I'd love to learn more about your experience at Hearst and how you went from being an editor to learning the business side of things. Yeah. So I think I spent maybe the first 18 years of my career just mastering the art of an idea, the written word, compelling visuals, really like pitching, you know, and and being in a room with pitching an idea for, for, for revenue. So that was a great foundation, I think, for what I, you know, would eventually come to be as, as a GM. And the next two years when I was running the beauty, what do we even call it? We called it the beauty hub at Hearst. (laughs) So when I was running the beauty hub, there was so much that I didn't really know how to do from the start. So, you know, budgeting and particularly in a time when media, print media was contracting, you know, so you had to look at your people and you had to say, all right, this is the budget. These are what these people cost. A lot of times you had to make really hard decisions, unfortunate decisions. And then the people who were left, you to motivate them and learn how to say, look, we started out as a team of 15. We're now a team of 11. That means most of you are going to have to work, not just on one magazine, but three or four. How do you motivate people to do that? Like that is, that was a really big piece of my two years 
So the budget, the psychology of all of the contractions that were happening, managing the team during that time, managing up. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my career was manage up in that scenario because I was put into a job where I was on an equal-ish, I don't want to say equal, but equal-ish plane with the editors-in-chief at Hearst. And I was managing their people. So they had beauty editors who didn't report into them anymore. They, they reported into me. And that structural change at the core was one of the most challenging things because I was put in this job. I didn't ask to, you know, I didn't say like, hey, let's do it this way. There was like, this was the way they were going to change the structure of the company. I was put in place to put that in, to put that into place. And there were a lot of people who didn't want that structure. And so then of course they were taking that out on people like me. And it was a really hard thing to learn, to learn how to manage because my boss is saying, you have to do this. These people are making it nearly impossible for me to do my job. And so that managing up, managing kind of sideways, it was an experience I sort of never want to go through again, but definitely experience that prepared me to be really really, really tough. And to just, you know, it it was, I learned a lot in in that time. How did you figure out how to manage the situation? Did you have a mentor or an advisor or someone who was helping you? Or did you really just learn as you go and you went with your gut and intuition and tried things and figured out what, what was actually working for you? I think a lot of it was gut. And I'm not saying I made the most perfect decisions from, from that. I mean, I definitely, my boss was incredibly helpful. And, you know, there were a group of four of us, I think that were put in these universal roles. Like, you know, they, they had a photography pod and a beauty pod and a fashion pod and a a celebrity bookings pod. And, and all of us kind of were each other's support system because nobody else was experiencing this level of, it was hard. It was just hard. It was just a very, it's almost borderline impossible job to be in. And so we at least had each other and we would meet each week to try to strategize on like, you know, like, can, <laughs> what did you learn here? How do we do this? And we were just pioneering a new way of working. And, you know, it, it what ended up happening was the leadership that had put this structure in place, they had moved on after maybe two years. And we were then left with a different new leadership that was not going to continue these pods. They were going to do something different. And so it was just realizing that, yes, you're put into a job that you think your boss is going to sort of be in it with you for like the next five years. So you're doing everything you can and investing your energy and all this time to making the thing that is going to be the structure for the next couple of years. I was a little naive to think like, wow, this whole thing might not last the next five years, for example, and it only lasted two. And so that was really tricky and a huge lesson to realize the situations that you think might be more permanent can change at the drop of a hat. And then you have to figure out what what the next phase is there. Really challenging, really challenging. Knowing what you know now and, and having lived through that experience, would you have done anything differently? Yeah. I'm the kind of person that just wants to put process in place and get to work. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time in the drama and the muck of everything. So for me, when I, when I was told this is your job, go do it. I just wanted to do it. I wanted to kind of great. Let's all just forget the way we we had been doing the job before. Let's reinvent the way we're doing it now. And let's move forward. I was probably very impatient with people who did not want to do things a new way. And I think I would have been better served if I would have been a little bit more patient. But that said, I think if I would have done it that way, I probably would not have made the progress and headway that that I made in my, in my own team. And so I think, you know, it's, you're, it's sort of a lose, lose in a lot of ways. And, you know, I kind of did what I did and I learned what I could learn and it served me for sure in the next phase of my career. What are some of the processes and maybe tools or software that you've been using for your team now, especially all working remotely? Anything that's really helped move the needle, keep everything streamlined for your team? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously everyone's on Slack. I think Slack has kind of like changed the world in a lot of ways. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, again, I look back and I, I was, Slack wasn't a thing maybe, you know, three years ago, three and a half years ago. And, and now it's like every, the only thing that, you know, we rely on. So that's been obviously huge. Zoom. Huh. I mean, if we only knew to buy stock in Zoom a year and a half ago. So yeah, for sure, Zoom. We use a system, I believe it's called Miro. And I think it's Miro. Oh God, maybe it's not. But it's 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 like little post-it notes that almost function as a whiteboard. And because we do whiteboard so much in the office, that's been a real hard transition, I think, for a lot of people. Because if you're trained to kind of think that way and just write and draw. So Miro has helped with that. I've never in the, well, I, I would say I, I haven't in the last for sure five years used as much like notebook paper that I've used in the last year because I just can't keep anything straight. Like everything, there's just so much happening. And I've just gone back almost to my roots of pen and paper. So I've used a, gone old school a little bit there too. <laughs> How have you been able to manage this, you know, high, high pressure career and also now raising two children and, and a new little baby and congratulations. Oh, thank you. Oh, so I have to say this is okay. This is my total truth and reality. Obviously people had babies in COVID. I had mine the height of COVID and, you know, I was off those four months. It was great because I was in my little shelter with my people and we were very conservative. And then when I had to go back to work, I just didn't feel comfortable sending her to daycare. So I kept her and I was working, I was working from home. My husband was working from home. We had a 10 or what would have been when I finally sent her to daycare until she was 10 months old. She was four months to 10 months old while we were working from home. I have a first grader who's remote all in a two bedroom apartment. So this was like wild times in a way that I can't even fathom. And so just three weeks ago, I put her into daycare and it's kind of changed my life because I can at least focus for, you know, seven hours straight and really like be able to work. And that is something I wasn't able to do for six months, but yeah. So that aside was, that's been certainly the hardest part of being, you know, a, a working mother, but before my second, I think we just had a routine. Like my son was always in daycare. Then he started school, you know, kindergarten when, before the pandemic started and 
it was just like, okay, here we go. Like, we're going to pack up. We're going to drop off. We're going to go to work. We're going to come home. We're going to do the thing. And, and it was just, I think that regimented style of schedule, and this is what to expect. That's the only way we were able to do it. I think as to my husband is a CEO and he has his own company. And it's like, when you have two people sort of working at an aggressive pace all the time, that's the only way to survive. Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, my life is based on my Google Calendar schedule. I've, literally everything is planned, even on, even on the weekend. So, and I'm I'm a new mom too. She's 21, almost 22 months now. So I still still say new mom, but it's definitely not easy. And learning to balance everything and schedule everything, and somehow somehow take time for yourself. How do you take time for yourself? Well, I would say prior to the pandemic, I had to get my, my thing was massage and I don't care if it was at the nail salon on the corner. Like I had to have somebody work. I carry my stress in my neck and my shoulders. And if I don't take care of that, I'm flat out with a, with a stress headache, attention headache. And I, I just can't, I don't have time for attention headache. So I would be really good about doing that once every two weeks, once a month, when I could like splurge and do something, you know, at a real spa, I would, but if not, it was like the $30 massage. And to me, that's all I need to kind of feel normal. So this has really rocked me the last year. Like I haven't really been able to, to do that. So I'm relying on my Theragon and I have this massager that I got from Amazon that you kind of, you know, put it sort of has these things that roll around it gets warm and it's like I live and die by this thing now but I think you have to understand where your stress is carried in your body it's because everyone's like oh self-care self-care but self-care only works if you're treating the thing that's causing your physical problems like I have to be able to treat my shoulders and be able to treat my neck. And like, weirdly, sometimes I carry my stress, like in my feet, like I can feel like my feet just get like puffy. And like, so when I start to feel those things coming, like that's when I know I have to handle them because it's not just mental, like it physically manifests itself. And then it makes you sick and it makes you just like sort of a debilitating headache. And if you don't take care of those things, then you're just unproductive. So massage for me is crucial. What and I, I get it, whatever, whatever way I can get it these days. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely the, the same way. Me too. Have you tried zeal probably before oh the pandemic. God. So zeal was also on my rotation between like a, a regular spa, the nail salon and zeal was like how I would, you know, try to get regular massage before I have not done zeal since COVID happened. I think I need to kind of get over it and open myself up to it a little bit more because it's amazing. I know that's what I'm missing the most too is massage. So I, I still haven't, still haven't had a good one yet. Oh, it's tough. If that's your thing, it's been a really hard year. (laughs) And I feel like as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh, I feel how I feel all the knots. I get all my stress here too. No, so bad. When you first joined Dot Dash, did you have a team or you had to build it from scratch? I had, it was interesting. The company acquired Birdie. And so with that acquisition came, I think six editors, five or six editors. And then Dot Dash had a team of editors that they were also putting on this new acquisition to kind of help with the transition and bring the site into a period of growth. And they knew kind of what to do with their people on it too. 
So I came in almost as a third party and with the responsibility of creating a new culture and creating a new way of working. And so I was the outsider for sure, because the team from Birdie had each other and the team from Datash had each other. And then it was me. And that was interesting because the culture at Birdie was completely different than the culture at Datash. So kind of blending that together. And then the next couple of months, we started being able to hire people. And the first hire that I made was somebody to oversee visuals because this was a very visual brand. I mean, it was beauty is, you know, it's, it's all visuals. So we created, we hired some, this girl named Christina who came in to do our visual plan. And then after that, we hired help on the social media side, because again, you know, and, and I think this is interesting because dot dash if you don't know, it's a company that used to be about.com. And so they took all of these historical about.com stories that had, you know, decades of, of traffic. And then they made all of these new brands that were dedicated to certain topics. So they took all the about.com health content and they made very well health. And then they took all the travel content and then they made trip savvy. And so they did that for a variety of categories. Those brands weren't necessarily, they were incredible at traffic, but like from, because they were new brands, they didn't really have like a branding playbook the way Birdie had or the way Brides, for example, had when it came from Condé, 85 year old brand. Like, of course you have a branding strategy there. And part of that branding strategy on Birdie and Brides was a very sophisticated visual playbook and a pretty sophisticated social playbook. And those were two things that Dot Dash did not have prior to these acquisitions. And so it was very weird for me to go to our CEO, our CFO and say, hey guys, like we need a visual editor. <laughs> like we need more social people. They were like, no, you don't. You need to just get the content and get more traffic. And so it was trying to also teach my bosses, like this stuff's important too. We have to invest behind it and kind of doing that dance a little bit of like, okay, do this first and then you can get this. And so it was very interesting navigating those waters as an outsider. Well, I have to tell you, our very first Social Fly employee is actually one of your employees now at Dot Dash, Mary Kate Hoban. She's a commerce editor. She was our first employee at Social Fly. That is so crazy. See, this is what happens in our worlds, right? Like everybody knows each other and hires each other's people. That's so cool. Thank you for making yeah. that connection. She yeah. is awesome. Something that I've learned over the years as we've hired people in leadership positions at Social Fly is some people will go in with the mindset of changing things right away and others will observe the lay of the land and then roll out changes as needed. What type of leadership style do you have? I'm definitely the second. I think I'm humble enough to understand that there are people who know how to do things that I don't know how to do. And I like to give people a chance to show those skills and to then figure out like how I work with those skills. And they, it might not be the way I would do it. It might not be perfect, but I think you can make something great and preserve morale and preserve a lot of positivity within the org. If you don't kind of come guns blazing, firing everybody. And I have fully been on the opposite side of that. When you're in the world of print, 
and an editor, new editor in chief comes in, chances are you're done. I was some, I was lucky enough to survive each editor in chief transition that I had lived through in my career, but I know that feeling. And I know that, so I try to come at a new situation like that with a lot of empathy because it feels really terrible to like just be on pins and needles for a couple of weeks. And so I just, I've never, I I always like, just like give people a chance. And if you, even if you don't do the job the way I would have hired somebody to do it, I think we just have to agree to get to that place. And so I've done that with a lot of, you know, a couple of editors in my time. And for the most part, most people have figured out how to do it. Up next, how Leah tries to achieve work-life balance and a rapid-fire Q&A. All right, Leah, so we are doing a new segment now on the podcast with rapid-fire questions that we didn't share with you ahead of time. So a few quick questions. The first thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? Oh yeah. (laughs) I promise it's not hard. It's not a test. (laughs) All right. Describe yourself in three words. Oh God. (laughs) Describe myself in three words. Super organized, a mom, very driven. Those are six words, I guess. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Speaking a new language. I'm the worst. I, I cannot do it. It's just not in my brain. A beauty product you can't live without. It's a facial oil from a woman named Tammy Fender. It's the best oil I've ever used in my life. (laughs) All right. We're going to have to try it. You'll have to tell us what it is. (laughs) What is your most used emoji? Oh, the crying, laughing face, which, which apparently has canceled. Oh yeah. Um, Yes. Wait, that was canceled? Yeah. Because what is it? Gen Z says it, it's now the skulls or something. What is it? I don't know, but apparently, I don't know. I think canceled. Maybe I used the wrong word. It's just, no, that is the right word. If it, like they said that it's basically like wearing a center part. If you are, yes. um, if you have you know. to, it was replaced by, I think it's skulls. Okay. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I still use the crying, laughing emoji all the <laughs> Me time. Too. And now when I use it, I'm, I'm like, oh God, everybody thinks I'm an old lady. <laughs> and you can't wear skinny jeans anymore. You can't wear skinny jeans or have a middle part. <laughs> I'm still using it. I don't care what, I don't care what they say. (laughs) Do you, is there an app on your phone that you can't live without? Right now it is an app to my daughter's daycare. (laughs) I get it. That's a good one. You have a hidden talent. I play the piano. (laughs) If you could have any superpower, what would it be? That one is tough. I don't know. This is so boring, but I'd probably want to fly. All right, dad, I'm telling you, this is the new, the new theme. The past few people we've asked this question to, everyone wants to fly or teleport somewhere. It's because I think we're all type A and want to get somewhere as quick as possible. Oh my gosh. Or it could be that we haven't traveled and maybe we just want to a way to get there. Wow. That's so interesting. So, well, you did great job on rapid fire. (laughs) Wait, I was had to Google it. It is that skull emoji that replaced it. I just needed to know. I just Googled it. Is it not? I feel like I've still been using it. If I update the app, my iPhone, is it going to go away now? No, it's not. No, it's not canceled. Basically, it's just not cool. So according to this article, for many Gen Zers, the skull emoji has become a popular replacement for conveying laughter. Because people say like, I'm I'm dead. dead. Yeah. (laughs) 
them like I'm dying, which means I'm it's so funny. Instead of LOL. All right. Well, I guess we're just, I guess the three of us are just too old for real. I just had to Google that one to get to the bottom of it. So thank you, Courtney. Seriously. Thank you. <laughs> so funny. I was like, wait, why the skull? Now I get it. That is kind of funny, but I, I'd rather use the double crying. <laughs> and I also, and I, I, I want to make sure it's the emoji that's like the sideways double crying. Oh, <laughs> see, I, 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 I don't use the diagonal <laughs> one. I use just the straight up, the straight up and down kind of one. Yeah, if someone sent me skulls, I would think that they were threatening me or something. <laughs> I would be very scared. <laughs> um, oh, man. So anyway, what do you do when you're not working? And how has that changed in the last year? So we have a little house down at the Jersey Shore that we were really not spending every weekend at, I think, prior to the pandemic. And then once the pandemic happened, we basically moved there for the next, maybe like the first six months, because I couldn't have my baby in the city because my husband wasn't going to be able to go into the room with me. So I changed doctors and we just moved to the beach. And so that's what I love to do when I'm not working. It's kind of my happy place. It's my our whole family's happy place. And I think how that's different is that we're just spending a lot more time there now. So we're definitely there on most weekends just to kind of get some space and feel like the kids can run around without a mask because it's more, you know, it's out and we have a yard and they can get outside. How are you able to manage, you know, work-life balance? Or do you feel like you have work-life balance? And if you do any other tips you can share? Oh God, I don't think I have the best work-life balance, to be honest with you. I have a lot of mom guilt. I have just Especially now, because, you know, there, if, if there was a gray zone before there, the whole, my whole life is gray right now. Like there's just, there's no boundary. And, you know, I just, I feel like I'm on the phone too much and I'm on my computer too much. And I'm not kind of living in the moment the way that I really did try before the world went to hell. So, um, so it's, I don't know. It's, I think it's hard to have it. I think it's a really challenging thing to have it. I do try to keep my weekends as work-free as I can. Although now that I have the baby and she has a nap, she snaps twice a day. I do find myself like as she's napping, like I jump on and do work because I just feel like, can I please just get above water for like, you know, one, one day above water. So that happens. It's, it's, I don't, I don't think I have a balance. I'm, I'm not good at it. I hear you, but look, it's real, real to say that. And I think so many moms are experiencing that right now. And, you know, myself included, I, I do the same thing as you on the weekend. Anytime she's napping, I'm like, yep, I have two hours now to to get on the computer and get stuff done because you just have to find these little, you know, blocks of time to, to have those moments to yourself, to, to, to work. And I think the worst of it is that, you know, if, if you're putting work at a very high level and then, you know, the next level has to be your kids, obviously, because they need you. And then I think my husband gets the worst of it. Like he probably sees me at my worst, you know, I'm like no patience with anybody, uh, you know, you, you've got to, you know, I got to bring my best self to work and he gets like my worst self. So the poor guy, I feel bad. <laughs> Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that defines your values or work ethic? I think my mantra is probably say yes to most things. An old boss told me that once 
actually when I was going through a breakup, actually, after I broke up with this guy, she was like, just say yes, say yes to everything now for the next, you know, six months, just like say yes to the next date, the this, the that, like it's going to lead you to the next thing. And I've applied that to work in a lot of ways. Like I think from the first job that I had, you know, just looking at that random job posting in my college and being like, yes, I'm going to put my resume in here. And so even if you think that it's not right, or you think it might be a little weird or out of bounds for you, I do try to say yes to as much as I can. What are you most grateful for every day? My family of four, because I tried for a really, really, really long time to have my daughter a really long time and went through a lot of IVF and three rounds that didn't work. (laughs) And it was a very long journey to get her. And I randomly ended up getting pregnant naturally after all those years, which was crazy. And so I think every day I go to bed, just like, thank you for my family of four. I can relate. I I also went through infertility and IVF and I just, I know how important it is to just finally have that, that happy ending and being able to look in your daughter's eyes now and just be like, yes. Every, every night that I feed her her bottle, I am just like eternally grateful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I I understand. I, I completely understand. If you could give us one last piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm. I think just try to do your job with as much kindness as you can. And I say that because in the world of media, it is not always like that. It's really nasty. It's tough. And I think it's changing. I hope it's changing. There are signs that it's getting better, but I think what happens is the cycle happens and you're treated meanly. And then you think that to kind of get ahead, or maybe like it's a rite of passage for you to then pass that energy down. And I just never bought into that. And I have always tried to, I mean, not that I'm perfect, like not that I'm not a difficult person to work for sometimes, but I'm not mean about it. It's more like I expect a lot. And so I want you to kind of come up here and come grow yourself. And that's the expectation, but I don't do it in a way that I think is cruel. I do it in a way that is construction or yeah. Constructive. (laughs) (laughs) Friday, end of the day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I try to do it in a way that that is constructive. And I think that that is really important as a leader. Absolutely. Kindness. Is, is definitely key. One of the questions we ask during interviews is what is the nicest thing that you've done for someone? We ask on every interview because we like to see, you know, if people are nice, if they're kind. And I think it's just so important to bring a kind team, kind team around you. So I love that question. I've never been asked that. And I've never asked that before. That is brilliant. I love it. It's yours. You can have it. (laughs) I love it. I have like nine heads to hire in the next like month and a half or two months. So I'm going to now incorporate it into every interview. (laughs) Yeah. Let let me, let me know. Let me know how it goes. (laughs) Finally, Leah, what does being an intrapreneista mean to you? I think growing myself, growing my brand and growing my team. That is, you know, to me, that's why I come to work every day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, your incredible career journey. I can't wait and we can't wait to continue to, to see what you do next and these incredible new, new platforms that you're building. 
where can everyone find you and follow you and, and find all of the websites that you, that you manage now? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram at Leah Wire. And then obviously brides and birdie have their own accounts there. And then of course the websites. So we would love everybody. If you're planning a wedding where the brides is the best website to follow. And then, you know, birdie is just a really, really special beauty site. So if you haven't gone on or if you have go again, <laughs> and we will be sharing all of the links below as well as in the show notes. So definitely check out Leah on Instagram, as well as Birdie and Brides. Again, thank you so much for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.